Hi, everyone, and welcome to season four of the podcast. I'm super excited to be back and to announce that the podcast will now be called the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast to better reflect the subject matter. The first few episodes were recorded before the rebranding, so I still refer to it by its old raw fork name in those. Anyway, I had no idea when I started this podcast that it would evolve to this format, but I did know that I wanted to share people's stories. It has evolved from me reading my blog post out loud to interviewing non-traditional pharmacists, including herbalists. Season 4 will air every Friday, highlighting inspirational pharmacists that chose to fit out of the proverbial box and are working to build a new system of care focusing on natural and preventative medicine. Please enjoy the show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm deeply honored to introduce today's guest, but before I do, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, I conducted my first ever virtual nature walk with Dr. Stephanie Gaglione this past weekend, and we had a blast. I'm preparing for my retreat less than a month away, and it feels surreal. And I'm also teaching a six-month business-oriented herbalism immersion course. So if any of those sound interesting, follow me on Instagram at rawfork or email me at marina at rawfork.com to be in the know. Now back to today's episode, Helen Sirani is the Director of Content Development and Partnership. Dr. Sirani was recently recognized by the Washington Business Journal as 40 under 40 for her work on combating opioid abuse and misuse nationwide through pharmacist patient care services. Dr. Sirani is a change agent who takes pride in her efforts to serve the needs of underserved and marginalized communities, both nationally and internationally. Prior to joining APHA, Dr. Sarani served overseas for three years to heal hundreds of displaced refugees at the front line from Western Syria and Northern Iraq. Dr. Sarani is a first-generation immigrant with English being her fourth language. She serves in numerous boards and committees involved in DEI work. Her greatest passions in life are working with a diverse mix of cultures, people, and traditions who she interacts with. Dr. Sarani frequently finds herself outside of the United States beyond the bounds of the pharmacy profession into the fields of adult education, discrimination, immigration, and workers' rights. So without further ado, let's welcome her to the show. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I have with me today Dr. Helen Sarani, and she's an association management pharmacist. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's lovely to see you. And first of all, I'd love to know how you came into the pharmacy field. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born, where you went to school, and how uh, did you choose pharmacy in the first place? So um, I would say I'm one of the very few pharmacists who took the long route uh, into the profession. Um, I knew I always wanted to go into the medical field, and uh, that is something that was just uh, how it started. My parents always inspired me um, to go into the profession as well, Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I did a few um, rotations and volunteer work in hospital setting uh, in dental clinics, and I realized that... um, 
blood and I don't make good friends, uh, but I always was good in numbers and um, fascinated by chemical structures and things like that. So I realized maybe pharmacy is the right route for me. Um, I decided to um, do uh, a bachelor's degree first. Um, and as I went to one of the liberal arts schools in Atlanta, Georgia called Agnes Scott. And I'm glad I did that because uh, the liberal art world uh, kind of opened up my mind into the world and exposed me to a lot of things. So pharmacy wasn't a rushed decision immediately after high school. It was more, I kind of explored the world. I majored in biology and psychology. I exposed myself to so many various aspects and I realized that pharmacy was definitely the right thing for me. So, um, so that's how it started, I would say more like a, an inspiration for me, at least. Wow, amazing. So did you grow up in Georgia as well? Or where did you, where were you born? So I, I am a first generation immigrant. And uh, I came to the United States at age of 13. Um, under um, the asylum status. Uh, my parents were forced to leave um, my country of origin, which is Iraq. Um, and uh, I came uh, to United States uh, through um, an asylum status from the US government. And uh, we were settled in Georgia. And, um, and from there, um, I went to high school and I went to undergrad, but then for pharmacy school, I went to Northeastern. So it all started in the South, I would say, even though I don't have a Southern accent, but it started in the South. And I would say I made my way up to the East Coast and, uh, and went back home after I got my trainings and then back to DC to serve the profession. Awesome. So I love how you said that you went to liberal arts school and you had these different majors and then you chose pharmacy school. So um, what what was that missing piece for you after liberal arts school? Did you know that you don't want to go any further in biology and psychology and you just need this new field of pharmacy? Or like, why did you pursue an extra degree after your first one? So that's a very good question. Um, I think um, everybody, if you ask me personally, now a lot of people would disagree with me. I think everybody should consider a, a degree in liberal arts education um, because school is not, it's not about hard skills. And I feel like we don't do enough. Uh, I don't like to call it soft skills. Um, it's more about human skills. And I feel like liberal arts kind of exposed me to that. Um, I get residents, I get students, and I would say the chief complaint is the, they need extra help in the, those human skills. So I feel like I come at it, I went to school, to pharmacy school, um, and I was at an advantage because I went to a liberal arts school where they exposed me to everything, public health, um, critical writing, um, history, uh, geography, where I had, I started developing an appreciation to everything in the world. And that partly explains that diverse, um, you know, understanding that I have that I'm not just uh, focused specifically to one aspect of pharmacy, but more everything, mindfulness, meditation, pharm pharmacotherapy, life lifestyle changes. And that's because I owe it back to my liberal arts education and the background that I was um, exposed to. So um, in a way, I would say my degree in biology, my degree in psychology kind of fed, 
feeds itself into uh, my education from Northeastern where I got my doctor of pharmacy. So they were all in a way complementary to each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the, di the diversity that you're speaking about, both of experiences and um, how you're applying it to the field of pharmacy. So, and I also know that you are a world traveler. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you weave that into your professional and personal life? So um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a topic of uh, my expertise and a topic that I'm really, really passionate about. And um, I, don't, I don't think anybody can develop a div an appreciation of diverse diversity if you have not explored the world, have not in, you know, interacted with locals in all these uh, other countries, um, you, your, your mindset starts to change because you see how others perceive life. You see how others practice uh, um, you know, how they live their day-to-day. -day, um, you know, uh, it's just, you, you start to understand that the American way is not the only way, that people live differently. They have different cultures, different practices. And I think the only way you can start looking um, at the world from different lenses is by exploring those lenses, by visiting those countries, looking at people, living with them, interacting with locals. And perhaps my favorite thing about exploring all these countries is the interaction with locals. Um, I don't speak every language out there, but um, I would say the interaction definitely has been a huge asset in broadening my understanding when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when I teach the, you know, this topic, that is the angle I take at least. So um, if I had all the power in the world, I would encourage every student to have like at least a year um, of study abroad because that the, the the knowledge you get from living abroad is just it's invaluable I would say yeah yeah I totally agree and actually I was lucky because in my pharmacy school I had the opportunity to study abroad for six months that's awesome um, well for a semester so it was only four and a half months but uh it was just like you said invaluable just yeah. like changing experience and I was the first uh, class of pharmacy that was ever offered this because our curriculum as you know is super intense so they would only offer it to other majors but not us and I was like the pilot pioneer group that they offered it to us in, the, in our second year and uh, I took it you know I, I took the opportunity and I think that's exactly what it taught me just like when a an opportunity presents itself, you just say yes, exactly. and then you figure exactly. out the rest. Exactly. And just like living in these different places. And we got to live in three different places. So it was five weeks in another That's country. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It just, it, it gives you that perspective that, wow, I didn't, I didn't think something like this would exist in other parts of the world. And then when you come back, it's at least for me, it feel, it gives me that rebirth experience. You start fresh, you have a different outlook at the world. And of course you, you, 
you come back with so much gratitude for this country because um, only then you understand that we are we are we need to be so grateful for all the benefits that we have here the healthcare system the um, access to quality education and things like that because you know different countries have different access to care so all in all I would say it has benefited me a lot in my um, the first outlook at how I develop programs for the pharmacists in the country as well as my outlook at the world as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the reason we have a healthcare system is so that we can be healthy and happy and enjoy life to the fullest and, you know, live our best life and our best years and sustain our health and happiness. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Physical, we focus a lot, I think, on the physical. So yeah. if you have a, phys- a good physical body, you have that potential to live a great life, but it also uh, matters what's going on spiritually and mentally. So if you have a chance to have a different perspective, a different outlook, and give you gives, giving you like an appreciation and gratitude for what you didn't even exactly. realize you had or didn't realize you should be grateful for, that's when, you know, there's something switches and it's like the best antidepressants is just effective. Exactly. Yep, totally. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. So how did you start traveling and how much time have you spent abroad? Oh, gosh, <laughs> I started really early, I would say. And there was a lot of uh, resistance from family, I would say, because and I still get resistance. And um, I know I blogged about this because the number of question I get from people, but you're a female, how do you do it all by yourself? Um, and I think there is a challenge um, in the whole uncertainty process. Like I just, I love to put myself out there and I never thought about, well, I'm a female, I need to be careful. Um, so I constantly get asked, do you just do it by yourself? You must be very brave. That's what I constantly get. Um, and I think it's just the joy in challenge that, that I find I find it to be um, really, really exciting when you put yourself out there, you try to figure out the route from A to B, not knowing the language and trying to communicate with whatever it takes to get that local understand you uh, to see what you're trying to accomplish. So that itself is just brings joy to me. Um, there is no such thing as language barrier in my dictionary. I think if you really want to connect with the other um, individual, it's the it's like the love language that comes from the heart, you know. Um, as far as how far, how long I've spent, it depends, honestly. Um, one thing I like to do is when I travel, I like to be gone for at least two to three weeks um, because I like to expose myself to places that is not quite austere, but not so developed like Europe and America because um like I like to see places with so much uh, difference, uh, rich in culture, and um, and for that to happen, it just I need to give myself enough time to kind of explore the spot uh, and give it justice. Um, the last spot I was in was in in Cuba, I would say, and it was right before COVID nineteen, and I was there for about ten days. Um, so I just showed up to the island uh, with you know with with just cash because you don't have access to any ATM machines or bank accounts. So I just had a sum of cash, and I um, I got a rental uh, I, I, like a, a rental car, and I just drove all around the island, and it was just amazing. And I learned so much from locals. Um, 
because, you know, Cubans are one of the most educated people in the world and people tend to, they don't understand that the, the national gross income of Cuba comes from the intelligence, uh, their intellectuals. So basically, let's say when Italy, for example, was hit by COVID-19 really bad, it was um, the Cuban doctors who were sent um, to Italy to, you know, for a rescue, but they actually provide the training to other countries. And in return, they get food, they get clothes, because again, Cuba is under embargo, as you're aware. So that is how the country gets by, is using uh, the brains of their citizens and training other doctors and other healthcare providers. And for a return, they get um, food and supplies and things like that. So that was fascinating. Um, my Airbnb, she was a physician, so I would talk to her every day and we would. Uh, she would tell me how she would have gone to all these places to train other providers and and what that meant to, to her country. So um, I find value in the quality of my encounter with locals. Um, I am gone usually two to three weeks, maybe four weeks, sometimes if my company allows me to do that. And that's because when you're gone so far, you wanna just invest as much time as you're able to, because um, sometimes it takes two days just to get to a place in the middle of nowhere. So, but before COVID, I would say I would make at least two to three international trips a year. Um, but post-COVID, I would say all my travels have been canceled, unfortunately, until further notice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just going to comment on that. And it seems like you're choosing very remote yeah. places that um, don't really shine in the sun a lot in terms of like being a number one travel destination, but yeah. you find like special uh, connection to the people and the culture there. I really do. I do. Um, and people often ask me, what is my favorite country? And I find that to be extremely difficult because I find, I find every country to be special in a different way. Everybody's, it's like every woman is beautiful. Every country is beautiful mm -hmm. and there's different standard of beauty in their definition. So, um, but I would say, yes, um, I don't, I'm not crazy about civilization because I want to come back and have an appreciation for civilization. I like to disconnect myself from the social media and internet and all that um, because that's what I talked about when I come back. I feel like it's a rebirth because I've been so um, disconnected from the world and civilization for weeks. So when I come back, it just it just feels good. Um, it's it's very healthy for your mental state. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you have to disconnect in order to reconnect. Yes. Yes. And like really activate the parasympathetic, maybe, and like just totally, totally. To yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, how many countries have you visited in total? Uh, so I lost count, uh, but I uh, I feel safe to say more than seventy. Wow. More than seventy. Yeah. Even wow. though I have a hard time saying. Um, 13 to four country, 14 European countries, because after so many countries in Europe, you feel like it's the same, 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 you know, but I would say definitely more than 70 um, so far. Yeah. Wow. And yes, you mentioned that you blog about it. So I'm going to have your blog in the show notes for people to check out. And I love how you also link diversity and healthcare in mm -hmm. traveling and your kind of, um, 
input and what you're learning from other countries, just like what you were saying about totally. mm-hmm. applying it or possibly integrating it to what we're doing here. So I'd love to know, um, you know, what your experience in college was like with pharmacy and then what uh, was your career path and trajectory like to lead you to be part of AKHA? So that's a very good question because a lot of students ask me that and I give them hope because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it, it became so problematic that my parents were like, are you sure you want to be a pharmacist <laughs> you know, with, with six digits and loans, right? Um, I didn't see myself as a hospital pharmacist. I didn't see myself uh, in pharma. I didn't see myself in uh, retail. And again, I have all respect for all these sites. I'm not saying, um, you know, it was just, it's about me. Um, so my family were like, okay, so what do you want to do? And my answer was like, I don't know. (laughs) I just don't. So it was something bigger, something that was different. And I've always felt this way about a career uh, path that I've chosen for myself. It's always been non-traditional, I would say. Um, And that is when actually I packed my stuff and I left for Northern Iraq and Western Syria um, in 2010. It was immediately after my graduation and where I got my training in ambulatory care slash academia. And um, I told my family, that I will only be gone for a year I promised one year but little did I know my year got extended to three years and uh, I called my family I remember from overseas and I I remember telling them that I just love what I do so much and I'm never coming back to U.S. and they said you've officially lost your mind <laughs> you know but um, unfortunately 2013 is the whole unfortunate incident of ISIS happened. They pretty much occupied the region. And that is when my safety was in jeopardy. So State Department told all, required all the U.S. citizens holding a U.S. passport to help head back immediately. Uh, Because uh, I speak Arabic, I speak Kurdish, but I have an accent. So they knew I was an expat in the region. So my safety was definitely um, concerning. To, to the embassy. So I came back and again, back to square one, I still had no idea why I, what I wanted to do about my life. And then APHA actually, it's they recruited me because they were, um, they were fascinated about my experience overseas uh, and how I took a leadership role and transitioning the, um, the pharmacy curriculum from a bachelor's um, of science to doctor of pharmacy, because they were just so inspired by how America uh, does the uh, pharmacy program. So I was part of that. I was meeting with the ministers and, you know, all the um, government offices. And that's something very similar to what I do now. Um, And uh, my supervisor, I remember, she literally asked me to accept the position. And I was a bit surprised because it didn't feel like an interview. It felt like um, they were asking me to consider the position instead of me telling, asking them to consider me for the position. So that's how APHA started. Honestly, it was immediately after I came back, from overseas with my two suitcases, my combat boots, my camouflage pair of pants, and I had nothing, just two suitcases um, seven years ago. So, and here we are, I'm still with the association and have grown tremendously, I would say, in my role, but that's how it started, yeah. Wow, what an amazing story. Yeah. And yeah. can you elaborate a little bit more about what you were thinking when you went directly to Syria and Iraq and then 
what kind of uh, job or position you made and you created for yourself there? Sure. Um, so I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, and this goes back to the challenge when I, and people find that to be extremely hard uh, to understand, at least as a single woman. And, and I was in my mid twenties um, when I left um, for overseas and uh, I ha honestly had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I would just stop by, you know, I remember going to this random diabetes clinic with like lines of um, patients standing for their metformin, right? And I'm like, oh my God, there is no HIPAA regulations. There is no patient privacy. You have 20 patients in this, in this EDBD cube or tent in a refugee camp, whatever you call it. I just knew that the region has suffered a lot from conflict and there was volume um, and uh, supply not meeting the demand. So I, I was gonna go meet the, the demand that they have. Um, so I just put myself out there and I talked to whoever. And I think the fact coming from the US kind of helped. Uh, they're like, oh, she's American. I somehow, the little girl thought I was a Hollywood celebrity. I don't know. <laughs> but my favorite, I would say my favorite experience practicing overseas were those little girls. Uh, there were patients who would wanted to have me measure their blood pressure. And again, pharmacists have a lot of prescribed prescribing authority. And I find that to be extremely hard because pharmacists don't have any therapeutic experience uh, in the Middle East, but they have so much prescribing authority. Like you can go to a pharmacy and they'll give you anything you want. But right. in the US, here we are, we have this wealth of knowledge of understanding of clinical therapeutics, yet we, yet we hardly, um, we need to go through a, a physician. So I, I found that to be extremely interesting. But um, so there were like, I would see anywhere from 150 to 200 refugee patients a day. Um, you know, the usual, um, you know, Amcare stuff that we do from day to day, but it was fast and furious because the volume, I mean, when I was doing my training in Northeastern, I would get anywhere four to five patients a day, maybe. Um, but overseas was completely different. And then at the end of the day, um, there will always be a few girls, like they would stick around for hours just to get my attention. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't about care. It wasn't about, um, like they were hurting. It was more about like, she's like me, you know, because I spoke their language. I looked like them. And that's what I talk about when I present uh, the whole concept of community representation and diversity. Um, it's really important to have diversity in practice setting. It's important to have diversity in leadership. It's important to have diversity in, in all various aspects of healthcare because of this concept of community representation that as a little girl or as a, you know, um, a female of marginalized community, if you if you see yourself, like if you see someone that looks like you in a position of leadership or in a in a high ranking, you'd be like, oh my God, I could be her one day. And that's the the importance. So when they saw me, it just with a white coat speaking English, you know, and speaking their language at the same time, it just it just gave them hope, I would say, because Iraq has gone through so much um, over the years. So I would say that was definitely um my favorite part, but how did I end up being there? I still don't understand how, but I knew I, I knew I could be of help and I knew they needed help. So that's, I would say that's how it started. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, I totally get that. It's, you know, when you see somebody that looks like you and being in a position mm-hmm. that you can aspire to be, that gives you the permission. To- exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like not only the hope, but the permission to dream that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to also go back. So after you graduated Northeastern, did you go through the residency that you mentioned, the ambulatory care, or was it part of your training? It was part of my training. I would say I did not do a residency and, uh, and that was another, another reason why my parents were just so concerned. Uh, like I didn't, I just, and again, I am not belittling. This is just me. I just didn't think I needed ex- additional rotations. Um, I was, I've already gone through um, a phenomenal liberal arts program that exposed me to the whole world. I went through Northeastern who would, I was already exposed to two co-ops and that's what Northeastern is famous for. And then I did like six additional rotations. So I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. And the way I treated rotations was more of like a process of elimination. I don't want this. I don't want this. And so I figured like, well, I don't want anything, you know? So, so yeah, that's, that's, that was my experience with rotations and yeah, co-ops. Yeah, I could, I could totally relate to about like (laughs) going through so many programs. And then also when you say you don't see yourself practicing in the available fields, even though there's a wide, uh, you know, variety available for us, sometimes you just really don't connect with any of it. And it could be really confusing. And Mm -hmm. that's why it's so nice to look up to people that have gone where you want to go. So that's exactly. Yeah, so I, I love that story. Can relate so much. So, can you mention what is that co-op? I don't think I heard of that. So, co-op basically uh, the way Northeastern does, and that's why they're so respected nationwide. Is and when a student graduates from Northeastern, they already have two to three experiences under their belt. Um, they're different from. Uh, it's it's not like okay, well, I need to apply for a job and practice as an intern you are guaranteed a three month full pay job. And that is a perk that you get with Northeastern. And being in Boston, you you usually get trainings by, you know, Harvard Hospital. So you can't get any better than that, right? So I know I trained at Dana-Farber, which is one of the biggest uh, Harvard training hospitals and the COAC clinic. And then then I was also practicing as part-time in CVS. So Northeastern has a very, very good relationship um, with the institutions in the area. They treat medicine as their biggest ally. And that's something I loved about them. It's the relationships that they actually utilize to get all their students. And my class was not small. It was like, um, I want to say 85, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And almost everybody was guaranteed a job. And so we will, we will alternate. We didn't have semesters consecutively. One semester will be classes. One semester will be a co-op and then back to classes then back to co-op. So it was just basically you learn, you apply, you learn, you apply. And I thought that that was really, really interesting. So I like that about them. Yeah. So basically it's a six year PharmD program, right? And you have the IPs and the APIs, but you have additional co-op experiences that are correct. Correct. But I remember I did the bachelor. So mine was four years. But uh, instead of having the summers off, I was taking classes in the summer because this semester was dedicated to a co-op. Because remember, we would alter, alternate uh, one. Yes. One semester with a co-op. Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah. That's something I liked about Northeastern. I think they still do that. Yeah. 
That's really cool. Yeah, I remember I looked into Northeastern, but I decided to stay in New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so after you decided to go to Iraq, right, um, and packed up your suitcases, did you have a job already lined up there or did you just walk into a clinic and offer your services? I walked pretty much just randomly. I uh... Uh, I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I pretty much went and made a business case for myself. Um, and being me, like the youngest, the most ambitious, the faculty, they started dumping all these classes they did not want to teach. Um, like I had to tell people that I hated physical chemistry. And then I ended up teaching physical chemistry. I kid you not. And it was only during teaching that I learned, I'm like, oh, this class is actually fascinating. Yeah. But I hated it when I was in Agnes Scott, right? When I was doing my undergrad. Uh, because if you don't know it, I don't know how you can um, teach if you don't understand the concept. So you have to teach yourself first, understand yeah. it. And that's how it comes out naturally. So that's what I did. Um, I taught in pharmacy school there and medical school. I would round in the hospital with the physicians. And I remember drawing the whole kinetics of insulin. And then they would look at me. They're like, are you sure you're a pharmacist? You know more than we do. And I'm like, yeah, this is what they teach us in the US. You know, Because again, pharmacists don't learn the basic clinic clinical stuff there it's very admin uh, but when I was teaching them the kinetics and how you need to alter you know the dose based on the diet they were just fascinated like you know so much you know I'm like you know, this is just basic you know um, so yeah I just walked in um, it's the the beauty about medicine medicine is um, anywhere you go to in the world, medicine is taught in English. So I think that was something that kind of helped me out. Wow. Um, so yeah, yeah. Eng English, everybody speaks English in the Middle East. It's, but, I mean, not everybody, everybody in the medical field speaks English. Um, so yeah, I went to medical school and I would say um, the English kind of helped. Uh, but I told them that uh, I can teach any class they want. I did know that they were really, really interested in... Um, in transitioning to Farm D, so that actually played out really well in my case. And then I also kind of just walked and met the director of the diabetes, and I told him, "It looks like you guys need some help. I can do this." Um, but the next thing I realized, they were handing me EKGs. I'm like, "No, no, no, that's not what I. <laughs> that's not what I meant. You know, I can't. I can't diagnose. You know, but but that's how it started. I would say I just put myself out there and. Uh, I made a business case and that's what I tell residents and students. You're not limited to community or hospital. Um, you can do so much. And I think this, this in a way kind of benefits me because when students and residents go through my rotation, I, I assist in the roadmap of, uh, of what they want to do. Everybody has a talent. Everybody has a creativity, but they just need that little bit of a guidance as to what, um, what is it that you have and how can you um, use it in a way to get you where you need to be? And I, the fact that I was clueless and I'm, I'm usually very open about it, it helped me uh, in a way to assist my uh, students and residents. Yeah. You are open to opportunities. Definitely, definitely. And it's honestly, it's all about making a business case for your skill sets. It really is. How do you present yourself? What values do you bring? And how can you make a difference? Um, and that's a universal rule, I would say. So, and once you have that, I think everybody's just willing to kind of open up to you. Yeah. yeah. At least that has been the case. Yeah. 
So I'd love to know what you do now currently at APHA, if your mm -hmm. position has shifted over these seven years at all, and you know what what is your rotation like that you mentioned, and what are your other duties? So the beauty of association management, I would say, is you create your own job. Um, and I remember my supervisor eight years ago when she was trying to hire me, she said, I know your job description looks boring, <laughs> but knowing you, I know you're going to change it. And she was right. And one thing I tell people um, is that you always want to hire for the attitude. Don't hire for skills. And that's something they tell me, well, how can we make sure diversity, equity, and inclusion when we, when we hire candidates? Look for attitude. Don't look for skills because skills is easy, easily measurable. You have BCACP, you have MBA, you have, I don't know what, but that does not determine attitude. Ad attitude is hard to change. Um, so um, I would say um, she took me because she knew I put myself out there and I was flexible. And in the association management world, politics is huge. And you, you work with so many different personalities. Um, and it's a bit chaotic. Um, the, the world of nonprofit is a bit chaotic, but there is a benefit with that. When there is chaos, something good, good comes out of that, out of chaos. When there's too much system and too many metrics, it's like it, it turns, it becomes very black and white. That you, ask, you have to do it my way or highway, but in the world of nonprofit, because it's a little bit chaotic, because everybody goes into the nonprofit with, with, with passion. And a lot of time, passion kind of causes lots of friction, right? But something good, good comes out of that. And I think that is what benefited me long-term that um, I was able to study the environment and I still do because things change on a daily basis, right? And uh, based on my understanding of, of the environment, I was able to create uh, a different job experience for myself. Yes, I still do what I was hired to do, but I would say over the years I've added um, to what I was um, offered to, like I created new conferences, I created new ideas, broaden on the whole topic. Like when I first started, for example, there was a lot of emphasis on therapeutic, but that's that is something you would assume pharmacists have mastered at. Uh, we focus more on things that is that involves human skills now, how to hold a tough conversation, for example, when it comes to substance use. So it needed a lot of studying and a lot of patience, a lot of observation and understanding to see what members want and what members struggle with. And then a bit of creativity as to how you can package their need in a way that is um, deliverable and that fulfills their needs. So yet it has evolved and it continues to evolve because who would have thought we would be in a pandemic um, in 2020, yeah. So how has that changed your role? In a good way, I would say, um, in a good way, it has doubled to tripled my work responsibilities. Wow. Um, but I would say I've grown because uh, I have partnered with uh, PGY2 residency sites where I get every six weeks, I get a PGY2 resident 
Um, and that's an understanding I got from that um, Airbnb lady that I stayed with in Cuba, mm-hmm. that they get my skill sets and, uh, and they help me with my job. So these PGY to come and spend six weeks with me and they do the work with me. And for a thank you, they learn my skill sets in six weeks. Um, so yes, it's grown a lot. Uh, we touch on so many topics, but topics that I've always been confident that it, it pushes the profession forward. So when you have a passion, it means creating more work, but that work translates to more workload for you. So, um, so the change has been good, but it's just been, you just have to be quick. You have to be really, really quick because pharmacy has become so multi-specialty now. And it's hard to keep up with so many things going on at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So are the residents coming to your site physically on location or is everything remote now? They used to. <laughs> yes, everything has been everything has been remote. The students have been remote, residents have been remote, everything has been because I am remote. I'm working from home. So yeah. Yeah. So what does your day-to-day look like? Can you give us a brief rundown of a day in your work life? Yeah, so day-to-day is research is key in my job. Um, I like to read a lot um, in my free time. And I also read uh, during work because I need to know what guideline is out. I need to know what governor passed with legislation. I need to know what governmental institutions are up to, um, what the needs are of pharmacists. So that requires a lot of reading. So um, environmental scan. So I would say 30% of my job is just reading and looking at the environment. And then um, once I have that understanding is, it depends on the time of the year. So if you ask me now, we just finished up our biggest event of, uh, of the year, annual meeting. So now I am working on APHA Institute on Substance Use Disorder. So basically I'm developing everything, everything on substance use, like things on shame, on codependency, um, on family dynamics, things like that, uh, just because we're getting ready to have a big, you know, symposium on substance use disorder. Um, so research, develop sessions, work, talk to speakers, um, hear about their experiences, and then also identify new speakers, uh, review their content. Um, so everything that is in line with the needs of our members, I would say. But for that, for me to know that, I need to research a lot. I need to do surveys, evaluate the surveys, analyze the data. So it's it's something that is very diverse. It's not the, the same over and over and over. It changes from day to day. Yeah. So do you have like specific goals and projects and deadlines, but then it's up to you to, you know, get create a workflow around that and get it done? Yeah. So like um, for... APHA Institute on Substance Use Disorder, like I just emailed all my speakers that their slides are due by April 15th, for example. Um, And then by April is when I'm gonna go in, I have all their slides, I review, provide comments. Um, So yeah, there are hard due dates, but there's also uh, that flexibility of me doing research because we also do member benefit webinars on the side. We do print pieces, we do quizzes. So it's it's just, I don't wait until last minute. Um, I give myself a lot of room um, because if I start early, it just gives me, I just can't think creative when I'm under pressure. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a last minute person, that means I'm putting myself under a lot of pressure. So I try to give myself um, 
enough time where I'm able to think and research and read um, and run my ideas by some of the best experts in the country. Hey, I read X, Y, and Z. What are your thoughts? You know, do you think this is something that we should do? Because again, I haven't been practicing for seven years. So I don't have that patient interaction experience. I've been in association management. So, so that's how it is. It's a little different, but um, I would say it changes from day to day. But we do have goals that we need to meet. We have due dates that we need to respect and we have to get back to our experts as well. Yeah, sounds super dynamic. Like yeah. mm-hmm. there's a lot to do and it gives you that creative uh, push. Like you yeah. said. so um, you need to kind of take a step back sometimes and give yourself the space in which to be creative. But then you have a container for, you know, due dates. Yeah things to have yeah I would agree I would agree yeah it's a mix of yeah of both yeah Yeah. so what is like your primary role there um is it to create content for education for Mm -hmm. other pharmacists yes but that is um it's a bit complex because a lot of things that you know dictate education uh, legislation, environment, um, state board of pharmacy requirements, um, le- state legislation. So it's, you need to understand everything um, because the thing that drives my job is gap gaps in knowledge. So you, as a pharmacist, you come to me and you say, I have the guideline by CDC just came out and, and I just feel like it's a little confusing the light bulb goes off in my brain. I'm like, oh, that's a gap. If that, if they're struggling with this, that means we need to do a training. So I jump on opportunities immediately. And, you know, over so many years, I've gotten good where there are opportunities I just jump on and there are opportunities where like, uh, let me give it some thoughts or um, let me run it by the advisory board. Um, advisory board are basically those people with not with, I mean, yeah, everybody has credential, but they have to have practice experience. Um, They're practicing what they're preaching from day to day with patients. So I run my thoughts by them and just to get a validation, is this something we should really do? So, um, but I would say gap analysis drives 90% of what I do for APHA from day to day. Yes, it's education, but a lot of things, the whole environment dictates what type of education we need to develop. One thing has been um, happening lately a lot is the whole transition from in-person to digital and virtual. What does that translate, you know? Um, And I know personally for me is, um, I don't have kids, but I have a dog and uh, I cannot stay on the computer for hours just to listen to a speaker, for example. So we've tried to limit our sessions like let's say two hour sessions, we've cut them to one hour, 30 minutes to one hour maximum, again, because the environment. Um, If there is a legislation, for example, where HIV AIDS is a national epidemic and uh, if HHS, um, you know, happens to make um, a a mandate where all pharmacies in the country need to prescribe PrEP and PEP, well, we are not prescribers, right? But all of a sudden we have a prescription prescribing role, which means I need to jump in and develop an outline and recruit best of the best in the country with HIV expertise to develop a training on how to train pharmacists to prescribe a service that they're not. Because again, it's new. 
it's new. When it's new, it means it's a gap in knowledge. So we need to train them to be prepared for, for whatever that is new in the environment. So, yeah. So would you say that most of the education is for continuing education purposes? And was it only for APHA members? It's for both. It's for both. It's for members and non-members. Uh, we get pharmacists from China. We get pharmacists from every part of the world. Uh, but I would say uh, we do continuing education and we do um, non-continuing. But I would say I only me as Helen, I only oversee continuing education products just because I don't have the bandwidth to see other tools and other depart departments manage that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of work. So yes. you're basically like keeping up with the current guidelines and environment in order mm -hmm. to create the standards for education you'd like to see in the pharmacy school curriculum and continuing education. Correct, correct. Except what we try to develop um, is complementary. It's not a redo of pharmacy school, it's a complementary. Um, and I know one thing, for example, like I was talking about earlier, the human skills. It's something that um, we don't do enough of in pharmacy school. So that is something I'm constantly, um, that is like, gosh, like at least 20 sessions just on human skills, every annual meeting, just because we need it. And it's, it's a little bit interesting because when you develop a session on diabetes update, for example, and you have the session scheduled against a session that requires human skills, you have 500 pharmacists show up to diabetes and you have maybe 20 to 30 pharmacists show up but I'm like, we've had enough diabetes in pharmacy school, <laughs> but it's, uh, th we're just wired with heart skills. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but that is something I would say, uh, content that complements what we've, what we've learned in pharmacy school, not necessarily every do. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. And do you inject that content back to pharmacy schools or do pharmacy schools like come to you for advice on, on anything? They do. They do. And that is something that um, APHA does. Like we partner with schools of pharmacy where they have their students take all our trainings, like the immunization, the diabetes. And I don't know if you've taken immunization when you were a pharmacy student, but almost any resident or student comes to me. They're like, oh, yeah, I've taken immunization. Um, so, yeah, uh, if there are trainings that we have and some school needs who've gone through the training when they were a student themselves, and, you know, granted, we update these trainings because, you know, science is evolving, right? Um, they'd be like, you know what? I was really impressed. I would love for us to partner with you guys so our students could take the same training like I did years ago. So, so yeah, so we partner with schools of pharmacy where they their students take our programs, um, you know, yeah. to get their educational needs. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So what would your number one advice be for other pharmacists or pharmacy students in terms of expanding their career to the next level? Um, gosh, um, I would say not to be so concerned if you are, if you find yourself in a situation where you don't know um, where you want to go next. Um, at least that was that itself was an asset in my case. Um, have a hard look at um, have a hard look at what is your purpose, what is your why, um, and then look at your strength. Don't focus on your weaknesses because we are humans. The first thing we think of, I'm like, oh my god, I am not good in this. Yeah. What are you good? 
at, forget the weaknesses, right? And as a mentor, I always try to focus on the strength, you know, and not nitpick on things that you did X, Y, and Z, you know, they um, look at your strength, look at your why. It is okay to be lost. It's okay. We've, we've all been there. We've all been there. I mean, struggle is a wisdom. That's where wisdom comes from. We struggle, we suffer, we fail, we pick ourselves up again, we fail again. And that's normal. I failed in my life multiple times. Um, and that's okay. But that's where the learning comes from. But I think a lot of residents and students come to my site thinking that after a PGY2, a site should be already flourished for them. And I think it's the expectation that they have. And when the expectation is not there, once they're out in the world, that is when they get disappointed. So manage your expectation, know your why, focus on your strength. And it's okay to, to fail. It's okay to fail. Again, um, I'm talking from someone who is very business oriented. Um, you cannot encourage innovation when mistakes are like a no-no. You know, for you to be innovative, it means you need to be willing to take risk, right? And when you take risk, it means there's a chance that you might fail because you're taking a risk, right? Um, and that is uh, what I encourage them in my site. It's okay to make mistakes. We're not going to reprimand you. And I want them to make mistakes. And if they don't, uh, it means they're too scared to put themselves out there. Um, so those are a few things I would recommend. Now, don't take risk with patients' life, but take a risk in the world of business. Um, because business is all about taking chances, but you need to know your why. Your risk needs to go along your, your why. And I think you'll be in good hands if you do that, yeah. And what would you say is success in the pharmacy fields, like in a pharmacy professional career? What do you define success as? So it all depends who you talk to, honestly. Um, success to me is about um, self-actualization. Um, it's not about a title. It's not about a ranking um, because we all know there are different criteria for ranking and there are marginalized people. Um, but I would say success for me is when you wake up every day, you're inspired and you look forward to what you do. And uh, so that's to me, that's what success is. It's doing something that you feel like it serves a great cause, um, because when you do that, you you're not only mentally healthier, but you're also, you're, you feel like you're part of something big, bigger than you. And uh, to me, that is what success is, is uh, if it results in a ranking, why not? But if you're in a high ranking and you're miserable, then I don't know how much joy is in that success, right? So it's all about being fulfilled, being satisfied of what you do and being part of a great cause um, out there in the world. Yeah. I love that definition so much. Thank you yeah. for sharing. Now we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, can we go into a super rapid fire round? Yes. All right. Yes. Um, what would be your number one tip for people to lead a healthier life right now? Um, well, number one concern is anxiety now, right? Um, um, Number one tip, I would say with anxiety not being avoidable, um, it will be a short uh, term uh, recommendation. Um, get involved, moving, I would say, move. Yeah. Move your body. Yes, move your body, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. anxiety is not avoidable, unfortunately. Yeah, we're all under stress, yeah. 
but also when you move into your body, you're not so much in your mind anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Just like a distraction. From exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Number two, what is your favorite food? Oh my <laughs> um, favorite food. I would say my mom's uh, traditional food. It's called dolma. It's great stuffed grape leaves. My favorite. Yes. Oh, I have something similar. In my- yes. So it's very international. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, okay. Number three. Besides traveling, what is your favorite hobby? Writing. Writing. Yeah. I would say writing. Writing. Yeah. So I'll share your blog so everybody can see yes. your beautiful writing. And I read it and it's amazing. Super interesting. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and advice and for all the work that you do. And I hope to see you soon. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed the show and learned something new from it. I certainly get super inspired by the guests I have on. If the same is true for you, I'd really appreciate a five-star review on any of the podcast platforms and a shout out on social media. You can find me at my name, Dr. Marina Booksov, or at the tag at Raw Fork. So I look forward to connecting and I hope you have a great week ahead.